Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. A life pleasing to God. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you received from us how to, you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, as we look to this passage, this ancient letter, we may it speak to us today. May your spirit teach us and lead us. May we uh, learn to follow you and love you and live as you have, have taught us to live. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So my kids just were away last week. This is twice this summer that we've had all four kids somewhere else. We didn't know what to do, so we went out to dinner. We had a nice, lovely time. But it reminded me when they come back to get all the stories. You know, the stories about who ate what. Little Juliet apparently lived off of breakfast, and then lunch and dinner was Fruit Loops. <laughs> the other kids did zip lines for the first time, and Noelle decided to, decide to have her brain catch up to her experience. Halfway through the zip line, she started screaming not from the very beginning. And then we got a video of it, and she said it was screams of joy. You can ask Kathy later, and you determine for yourself. Then there was those that came back, because there's a wildlife center, and they, had to, they got to hold snakes. Ooh, yay. Now, I kind of like that. I think that's pretty cool. But you could tell in the photos who did not. You see, these trips are fast-paced, and yet they're a retreat that's slowed down. Kind of interesting, isn't it? That we have all this quickness, and it goes so fast, and all of a sudden they're back, and they're longing for it the next year. And if you remember, if you've ever been off at a spiritual retreat, especially as a kid, you've been given some kind of a vision for how to come back and share the gospel at your school. 
And within the next, you know, September's coming, we're going to start a prayer group, and we're going to pray for two hours a day. And then we're also going to read our Bibles, because the speaker told us we should read our Bibles, and we're going to read our Bibles. We're going to read a half a Bible a day. And, and then we're going to share the gospel. Let's see, I have seven classes, so I'm going to share the gospel in every class three times a week. So that, okay, 15 people are going to give their life to Christ this week. Now I've got to start a discipleship. You know, you get these plans. You get this idea. And in youth ministry, in college ministry, life goes fast. And our agenda for raising up people of faith seems to be at kind of a breakneck pace. Now, I remember myself because I, I went from being in youth to then I went to being a youth leader and eventually a youth director and then eventually a youth pastor. And I recognized that there was a disconnect between people who have the laundry done for them, between people who never have to cook for themselves or they call it cooking because they took out two pieces of bread and put peanut butter and Nutella in between it. You know, there's people that their, their whole... Uh, evening routine is, consists of how to avoid doing some homework and then avoid doing some chores so that they can consume video games, TV, TikTok, whatever it is. See, remember all, I always loved it when a college student would complain about not having enough time. Do you remember? Have you ever been around a college student that was like, man, I am so busy. Like, I have to go to four classes this week. Like, one of them even starts at 9 and goes till 10.30 without a break. I remember being that student. I remember being that person who thought, wow, these seven years of college are just difficult. That's a story for another day. And then you get out into, what do we call it? The real world. It was just as real to them. Just in the same way a 14-year-old's overly dramatic view of what's happening to them is overly dramatic to whom? To us. But to them, it is the most important, most real thing they have ever felt. You see, we build these discipling church ministries based on the attention span and the availability and the freedom that these young people have. And time and time again, I talked with people who came through youth ministry, through college ministry, hit the real world where they were in charge of having to get up on their own, where they were in charge of having to get to work and work 40 to 60 hours a week, where they were in charge of after that 40 to 60 hours a week to actually open the mail, pay the bills, back when we had to use checkbooks, couldn't just automate everything, miserable days. You see, there's this disconnect sometimes between the way we portray how to live a vibrant, meaningful, engaged follower of Jesus on fire life versus the real life of taking care of doing and folding laundry. Actually, let's back it up a step. Doing laundry and then remembering to put it over into the dryer so you don't have to do laundry three times with one load. Might have happened this week in our house. You see, all these little details, they, they kind of put a little bit of a chafing, a little bit of a rub, a little bit of a difficulty. And the reason why I bring this up, and the reason why I scheduled this, is I knew that we were going to have the refocus seminar two Saturdays ago. And I knew in that refocus seminar, it was going to be heavily focused on vision and process and evaluating who we are as a church, where we are. 
One of the things that got brought up to me over the, in the, over the past week that may not have been as clear as it could have been or should have been was Stefan, uh, he, he outlined basically a five-phase uh, plan for revitalizing a local church. And so we are just wrapping up phase one. We're going to be entering into phase two. Phase two is where we establish a vision team, where we're really trying to focus on evaluating who we are, where we are, what's the, what's the problem, and what's the solution. The thing is, I'm also the transitional pastor, and something that might be in the back of some of your minds, or actually for some of you, it's in the very front of your minds, is when do we start the uh, pastoral search committee? Some want this to run congruent in the same way, and I'm just going to tell you, let's put the brakes on that for a second. You see, it's hard to go out and, and put out a, a, a description of who we are, where we are, and what's going on and what we're doing about it without going through that process of answering those questions so then we can try to recruit a pastor who aligns with who we are, where we are, what's going on, and what we're doing about it. So if you want to know when's the general time that we're gonna actually gather and initiate and start the pastoral search committee, phase three. And if you were there and you paid attention, or if you go back on our YouTube page and you go and you watch all the seminars again and you get a, re, get a recap of the five phases, Phase four and five are probably not going to be on my watch. That's going to be something that you all deal with implementing down the road as a congregation. Now, did you notice what I said? You all. I resisted being my true southern self and saying y'all. But do you know who y'all is not? The new pastor. Is the new pastor involved with the vision? Yes. Is the new pastor involved with the implementation? Yes. The project management? Yes. The, the multiplication of leaders, yes. Are all the things that we're doing and looking at contingent on the new pastor? No. We're not just going to sit here and spin our spiritual wheels until the new pastor comes and leads us somewhere. This is our church. This is Jesus Christ's church, and he's given us what? All the gifts. All the gifts necessary. And the other thing is, we can't rely on just a pastor and his wife and kids to become the driver of everything. So I just want to encourage you that this process we're doing in the, in the gap is important because you are an integral part, a necessary part, a dynamic part of what we're doing. And I'm just going to ask you, take a look around. Turn around, take a look. Very few of you did it. I trust that you all have chiropractic appointments this week because your necks could not turn. But you get the idea when you look around this room, you don't have to do everything. And if you're doing something and there's an appeal to do something else, you don't have to be the one to fill in the gap. You can be the one who says, I will pray that somebody steps up. If everybody does a little part, what are the, what are the, what's the old saying? Many hands makes things getting done. Okay, oh, I guess I got it wrong. So, by the way, that has nothing to do with the sermon. That's just a freebie. Just a freebie there. But just so you know, phase three is the time to start anticipating uh, uh, putting together a pastoral search committee. And remember, this is the transition process is indeed a process, not a timeline. In fact, I actually asked my mentor, 
Eric, you won't believe it. I asked my mentor, how long should the vision time take? He's like, he gave me the process speech. I'm like, yeah, I know. That's what we tell everybody else. In your experience, how long does it often take? Give me a bracket. Brother would not budge. He wouldn't even give me a timeline. So anyway, so that's my encouragement to you all in this perspective. <coughs> and the reason I did bring up this story and why I did take this text, years ago, one of my friends that I grew up with, we were in youth group together. I then was his youth leader, and then we were in each other's weddings, and we're still, like, I talked to him once or twice a week. And he's a, he's a high-end carpenter. He does design work for people that are building $15 million homes down in Sarasota, Florida. And one of the verses that he highlighted a couple years ago to me were the end of this verses, of this passage. Aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs and work with your hands as we directed you. Live quietly, mind your own affairs and work with your hands. You see, when we come out of the refocus time, it's easy for us to get caught up just like we did when we left senior high retreats where we thought we're going to go back and have a full school revitalization and, and revival by, by December. Where we're going to go back and we're going to have half the town uh, confess Christ. Where the, the Great Awakening was going to be jealous of us. It's so easy for us to think, oh, we need to start all these new committees. We need to start all these new teams. We need to join three more. We need to fill our schedule. No, no maybe no is the answer. An unequivocal maybe no. You see, what we're going to try to do as a church also has to fit the reality of life and how God moves. A quick show of hands, how many of you have been part of one of our growth groups that has already gone through or is going through uh, the Godspeed um, uh, book? Raise your hand. There's a few of us. If you have not, it's very good. If you're in a group or not in a group and you want to go through it, let's start a group. Because in this, in this uh, uh, curriculum, you have some people like Eugene Peterson and, and Tom Wright who are laying out a bigger picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus in the real world at a real pace. If anything, it's stripping down, doing less, and being slower about our Christian life and letting that be a clearer way to live to follow Jesus and a clearer testimony to those around us. People coming to Christ is not about us having a rockin' band. Although it's nice to have good music. People uh, coming to Christ is not about having a dynamic preacher who can fit everything in 18 to 22 minutes. Although that's a nice boundary. It's not about having parking lots so that you can fit everybody in. Because there's no hope for us on that. It's not about having a dynamic children's program with all the coolest things on the wall and a rock climbing wall in the atrium. It would be fun. Well, my mind still thinks it would be fun. My shoulders and knees say no. You see, all those things that we do to be attractional are, are kind of buying into a consumerist world. But I just want to remind you that as we close our summer where we've been looking at what it means to be united with Christ, slow down. Do less better. Go for a walk. Say no to being recruited for something at church if you're already doing something. 
Say yes if you're not doing anything. Or say maybe and then pray about what you ought to be doing or could be doing or where God's leading you. So that brings us to this text. Now, I'm not going to lie. I had verse 9 through 12 in mind when I chose it two months ago. Oh, this is going to be a beautiful text. And Monday, I'm like, all right, what text is this week again? And I opened it up, and I started reading. Finally, brothers and sisters. By the way, if you have the ESV, it just says brothers. The word in the Greek there is brethren. It's brothers and sisters. So just know this isn't just talking to, 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 to the brothers. It's talking to all human beings. Finally, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you learn from us how you ought to live to please God, as in fact you are doing, you should do so more and more. I'm thinking this is a good text. This is starting off strong. They're urging us to live in a way that honors Jesus. Live in a way that honors the Lord. And in fact, this is one of those good letters. This isn't the Corinthian letter. This is the Thessalonians. They, they're actually doing it. That's exciting. We're going to be good. And then it said, for you know what instructions we gave to you through the Lord Jesus. Oh, great. Now we know what to do, or at least a little bit. We're told how to live. For this is the will of God for your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Okay, I did not see that coming. I was wanting to talk about leading the quiet life, slowing down your pace, living and working with your hands, living in a way that's honorable that, oh, I see it. I see the light coming on. Okay, so the Thessalonian church is up at the top of a little bay of the Aegean Sea. It was, a, it was literally on this crossroad of the, uh, uh, there's a, a, a Roman road that traveled. It was literally the commerce road. Corinthian was down here and it had the sea travel going through. But this one has the land travel going all across. And so this town was uh, Greek culture, but Roman uh, loyal. And they had everything. They had gods, they had temples, they had the whole works going on up there. And so Paul, in fact, Paul wanted to go somewhere, but then the Holy Spirit gave him a vision and said, don't go right, go left. Don't go there, go to Macedonia. Thessalonians, Thessalon Thessalonia is in Macedonia. And so he went there. And in a matter of three weeks, some people were so upset with him, saying that he turned the world upside down, you can read in Acts chapter 17, that they left. They spent three weeks with this church. And some people believed. And they taught them how to live and how to love and how to follow Jesus. And they were doing pretty good at it. As a matter of fact, when they went and they left, went to Berea, then they went down to Athens and they went somewhere else. They went over to Corinth. Paul actually was so concerned about the Thessalonian church that he actually, you can see in, verse, in chapter 2, that he sends Timothy, his protege, he sends Timothy back to them. For the record, this um, letter is the oldest letter we have in the New Testament. This is the earliest theology that we see, and it's not a theological work. It's a, it's a letter of love, a letter of care, a letter of teaching, a letter of encouragement. And in this letter, he writes some things about how to live, recognizing that these people who just came to Christ are now being asked to live in a totally different way than the way they grew up. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like what we're asking our neighbors who have never followed Christ or haven't walked into a church in 30, 40 years to come in and now start living a, a new way? One that honors the Lord? One that brings peace? One that gives them value and meaning and health and wholeness? I think so. So this is what he's reminding them. This new, small, young church. He sent Timothy back. Find out how they're doing. Timothy came back with a good report. They're doing just fine. 
So he wrote them a letter, and probably only just a few months later, he wrote them a second letter, uh, rehashing some of the things that they're talking about. And there were some key issues that were coming up in this church. One was that Paul was so dynamic about Jesus is coming again, so get right with the Lord. Jesus is coming back to, stop, to, to establish his kingdom. The real king is coming, not Caesar, but, but Jesus. King Jesus is coming. That Some of the folks in Thessalonia were getting so excited about that, they were just standing around waiting to watch. It kind of reminds me when I'm driving on the highway and like, why are we slowing down? There's an accident on the other side of the barrier. The only reason why we're slowing down is so people can do this. Cause another accident while they're looking out the side of their window. You see, that's what the Thessalonian people Christian church was doing. They were sitting around, they're like, we don't need to work anymore. Jesus is coming back. Okay, so maybe not. Some of, the, some of their old ways were a little bit difficult to get rid of, and so that's where he addresses it. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you should know how to control your own body, pursue your own marriage in holiness and honor, not with the lustful passions as the Gentiles, the non-Christians do, who do not know God. So that, look at verse 6, it says, so that no one wrong, no one will wrong or exploit a brother or sister in this matter. One of the things that this church was commended for doing was loving one another, loving the other Christians, loving their neighbor. They were a very loving group. But one of the things that might have been different in their old world was the use of their body, the pursuit of intimacy, the pursuit of pleasure. And it's not that God is against pleasure, not that God is against um, intimacy, but it has a proper place. It has a proper time. It has a proper relationship. I remember I heard someone describe it when they were trying to teach young people about um, physical intimacy. Yes, it's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. In the same way, a fire is a really good and wonderful thing, isn't it? Fire, it's amazing what you can do with fire. Now, if you were to start a fire in the middle of the living room, no longer a wonderful thing. But if I said in the middle of the living room, in that brick structure created for fire... They're like, oh, now it's a fireplace, and now everybody's happy, and it raises the property value. Everything's good there. He said, that's the passions. That was a pretty good analogy, I thought, that like the passions in the middle of the living room, bad. In the middle of the living room, in the fireplace, good. In the same way, that's what Paul's trying to say, is these intimacy issues. You came from a culture that were part of your worship at a pagan temple was to go have a different form of temple worship. Part of uh, maybe your life was to, to try to find yourself uh, finding uh, meaning, finding value. Sometimes uh, it's, it's pretty normal for people to just want to pursue the other just so that they can feel good about themselves, that they were the conqueror, right? That's the world in which we live. That's the way of the world that makes everything about these intimacies to be about how do I feel, to be about how am I whole, how do I feel validated. In other words, we turn others around us into a commodity, into an object, so that they can make me feel good. Later on, I could go down, I could get a Dole Whip, and I can eat a tasty treat from Mrs. Robinson's little candy store. That's going to make me feel good. But that doesn't mean I have a relationship with the Dole Whip, does it? means a transaction occurred, and now I'm happy for a moment. And that's what Paul is saying we're doing when we're participating in sexual immorality. 
It isn't merely that we're just breaking a code or, or being undisciplined with our bodies. It's that we're hurting a sister or a brother. That we're taking our insecurities, our weakness, our frailty, our consumption, our arrogance, and we're bringing somebody into it and taking from them. And when you take something from someone and make them an object, you also take away a piece of their humanity. And when you take away these pieces of humanity by seeing someone as an object for something you can gain from them, by the way, sexual intimacy is not the only place and way that we do that. We do that all the time in business. We do that all the time in commerce. A good example of that, if you've ever moved and you needed a team of people to come help you pack the boxes, load the furniture, did you ever have it where you brought your friends? Think about your friends that helped you move from your first apartment to your first home. So those might be some of your fondest memories. And then think about the time that you were doing well enough that you just hired a crew for a transaction. Do you remember their names? No. You see, any time that we reduce human beings to objects, we're stealing away from their humanity. And the Christ-following way says no. Love one another. See eye to eye the humanness. See eye to eye the Jesus within every human being that you can. Because every person around you is fully human. Now, I'm a little weird. I have a lot of time to drive on the road. And sometimes I sit and think about how many stories I'm passing. Yeah, and I just declared that I'm passing. Yeah, I speed. But when I'm passing them, I'm like, that's not just a car that has been annoying me for driving slow in the left lane. They, they've, got, they've got something on their mind. They've, they've got a phone call they need to make. They've got to go to work and get home. There's something going on. They, they probably have a puppy. People are people. People are made in the image of God. And so when we abuse this person, we take away their ability to be whole. We take away their ability to connect with God. We take and use. And so he said, don't do that. That does not honor you, that does not honor the Lord, and that does not honor your brother or sister. So that's why he says in verse 9, now concerning the love of brothers and sisters. So verse 4 through 8 is kind of the negative. Don't do this. But now 9 through 12 is do do this. This is the positive. This is how you ought to live. And again, brothers and sisters, you do not need to have anyone write this to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do love all the brothers and sisters throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers and sisters, do so more and more. If I can compel you to do one thing, love one another more and more. We live in a world that operates by scarcity. We live in a world that thinks, if I just give too much time here, I won't have time there. And time may be the one thing that is a commodity. Okay, bad example. Let's go back. If I give them my emotional energy, I won't have enough here. And sometimes I find the more we give out love, it's almost like it's, a, it's an increased reservoir. The more we give love. When I had my first child, I thought there's no way I can love another one. And then we had two. I thought there's no way I can love a third. I don't have the capacity. I don't have the energy. I don't have the emotion. Sure enough, three, I can love them. Four, it's true. I love them. It almost feels like I even love them more and more. 
Five, I don't know about five. Maybe there is a threshold, but I don't think so. When we live in the idea of scarcity, we start to collect and we start to gather, we start to hoard, we start to protect. But when we give and flow freely, we pour out love, we pour out. And that's what Paul said, you are already doing this, so do it more. So how do we do it? Aspire to live quietly. What does that mean to live quietly? Not talk to your neighbors? No, 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 that's not what it means. I would love to do a test. One time I saw a diagram in a bulletin at a church. And it had a picture of nine squares with two lines between this row of three and the middle two rows of three. And I'm like, what is this? And then the pastor had the audacity to go say, put an X in the middle one. Okay, I did. And he said, that's you. That's your house. Write down the names of everybody who's in every other house corresponding to yours. And I was like, I mean, I can't. That's where he just said, love your neighbor. Not just the guy that you find on the side of the road who was beaten up by the bandits that we know from the story, but love your actual neighbor. And you can't love him if you don't know your name. And I was like, oh man, that's a really good point. And then I put the piece of paper away and I did not go meet my neighbor. So I don't know, it's maybe a bad illustration. But here he's saying, aspire to live quietly. Don't ruffle feathers. Don't be obnoxious. Don't be the loud one in the neighborhood. Don't be the people who draw negative attention to yourselves for negative attention's sake. Live a quiet and wholesome life. And work with your hands. And again, he had to tell them that because they were the ones sitting around waiting for Jesus to come back. But there is something real about doing good, honest work. Work in such a way that people value you. Work in such a way that people esteem you. Work in such a way that people say, it's almost like he's working for someone above the company, above the organization. Remember what Paul wrote in the times when he said that slaves obey your masters? And the, the parallel to that here today is servants obey your, your bosses. Employees obey your bosses and work for even a bad boss as if you're working for Jesus himself. First of all, that can help change a bad work situation if you're recognizing, Lord Jesus, help me work for you today. And help me bless this person who's making my life miserable. Help me bless them and hopefully change their heart. But what he's saying is live quietly, work hard, work with integrity, work with your hands. Do the daily things that make things go. Why? So that you may behave properly towards outsiders and be dependent on no one. Friends, as we go through this time of vision casting, as we go through this time of refocusing who we are as a church, everybody can play a role. Everybody's needed. Don't over-volunteer don't over and burn yourself out. If you're on the verge of burnout, talk to me. We will get you off of the committees as soon as possible, or maybe even that day, and we'll just let some things go undone. Because you are more valuable than just keeping something going. So don't burn out. But don't be disengaged. Everybody does a little bit. Let's live quietly. Let's do work with our hands. Let's love our brothers and sisters in a way that honors them, dignifies them, connects them to their maker because they have the image of God in them too. Then we will be received well by outsiders. Then those that we want to share 
whether it's three circles, four laws, two diagnostic questions, or a stumbling, nervous conversation of, do you know Jesus? It goes a lot longer. It goes a lot further when they already know you and respect you because of the way you live and work with dignity and honor and class. Sound good? So I wanted us to remember that we're going to move faster going forward if we slow down and do things well. You have permission. You have permission to say no to some things. Some of you need to hear this. You have permission to say no to some things at church. And some of you need to hear, get, get a little more involved. It's all good. Let us all do our part to live quiet, to work with our hands, and to lead lives that honor and love our neighbor. Lord, help us to live this way. Help us to identify what's going on in our own lives so that we can understand what motivates us to treat people like objects instead of like sisters and brothers. And Lord, in the ways that we are already loving people as sisters and brothers, let us be aware of that too so that we may do that all the more. Help us in our jobs, Lord, to work with integrity. Help us in our jobs to work in such a way that we are seen as an asset and not a problem. That we are esteemed and, and, and that never want, to, never want to leave. Lord, help us to work in a way that people see you through us. Help us to love and live in a way that makes people respect what you are doing in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.